Welcome to another episode of the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. And we're joined today by our general counsel, Mike Sikopoulos. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we're going to go through yet another whirlwind tour ripped from the headlines, things that we've identified in the news relevant to the medical legal world so that there are lessons learned, nuggets of wisdom that can be passed on so that our listeners do not become protagonists in another one of our episodes that ripped from the headlines, correct? Absolutely. And this next example comes to us uh, from from Kansas. And I have to say, this isn't the first case that we've had from Kansas. Uh, we should draw no conclusions uh, from that for our <laughs> uh, friends in the, uh, the Great Prairie. Um, so here we have a failure uh, to test so as to prevent a stroke. A $900,000 settlement was all ultimately reached in this case. Here are yeah. the facts. The uh, plaintiff, a healthy, active uh, five-year-old, began suffering headaches, dizziness, nausea, unbalance, vomiting, and lethargy back in March of 2017. Mm -hmm. And one evening he suffered a headache, severe painful cranial pressure, slurred speech, photophobia, weakness, and extreme lethargy and was taken to Wesley Medical Center Woodlawn Mm -hmm. there in Kansas. He was triaged by a nurse and uh, listed as non-urgent general care and was seen by the defendant, who was not a physician board certified in emergency uh, medicine. He had never attended uh, medical school and was, in fact, a physician assistant. Defendant uh, performed a cursory physical examination and failed to perform a neurological assessment failed to consult uh, an attending physician or order imaging or establish differential diagnoses instead, uh, performed a strep test, which came back positive, prescribed amoxicillin, and sent the uh, young boy uh, home. Mm. mm, Yeah, exactly. In addition, the Kansas Board of Healing Arts had previously determined that adjudicated that the uh, defendant committed fraud in uh, in connection with her attempt to renew her um, license uh, by falsifying uh, that she had obtained the requisite continuing medical uh, education hours necessary when, in fact, she had not. By the way, so, that sounds like a plaintiff attorney had written that because it doesn't it, sound like it does. And, and, and you bring up a good point. In fairness, we are reporting the facts as per uh, is given to us and to the extent that they have a bent one way or another that is because of the original source and not because of uh of us yeah so just just uh again don't don't as a greek we're always worried about being the messenger of bad news don't kill the Uh, messenger yeah exactly so uh here the 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 plaintiff or, or child suffered a catastrophic and medically preventable stroke from a brain tumor and uh, significant obstructive uh, hydrocephalus, and as a result, uh, permanently was paralyzed on his right side. He had significant uh, neurological deficits, had permanent impairment of eye movements, 
I mean, this this poor child uh, really had uh, significant uh, injuries. He was uh, had difficulty swallowing, slowed speech, on and on it, um, on and on it, it goes. And that was the damage that ultimately resulted in a nine hundred thousand uh, dollar settlement of this case. So mm. let's talk about this um, because there's a lot here that we can unpack. Yeah. So. Let's agree that this is a very difficult outcome for a child, which is very problematic. You have the child itself, then you have the parents, the family, etc. But I think this case distills down to an unusual presentation of an uncommon condition. Certainly, strep throat is more common than a brain tumor and obstructive hydrocephalus. Um, and I think the other challenge is that the problem evolved pretty rapidly over two days, and the person managing this patient may have not had a lot of uh, broad experience. So you have this perfect storm of um, somebody without a lot of experience. In this case, I think it was a a non-physician. That probably that's right. It's a, uh, that she was a physician assistant. Um, right. Without any specialty, it sounds like training in emergency room medicine. Right. And I think locked into the initial diagnosis, hey, look, I've got a positive strep test. Um, this must be the answer. And I'm sure the strep test was positive, but it was not the answer. It probably was a red herring or incidental, but it was not the cause of all of the challenges the patient was having. And I think the other thing that was argued is that a neurologic exam had never been performed. And I think it is possible, even likely, if a neuro neurologic exam had been performed and documented, there would have been deficits noted before this catastrophic, catastrophic outcome. That may not have been the case because sometimes kids can go downhill very rapidly without an abnormal neurologic examination. They may just have had some lethargy. Um, so this is just the um, this is just a, uh, a perfect storm. I mean, how do I think about this from a medical medical legal perspective? Um, you don't need to practice perfect care. The standard, the standard is have you met the standard of care? It doesn't mean perfect care or aspirational optimal best care. The standard of care is a floor that you can't go below. So let's recap the the elements of a medical negligence case. There are several. One is that you need to have a doctor-patient relationship. So you can check the box here. There was definitely a I'll call it a provider-patient relationship, but same thing, <clears throat> that that provider um, needs to follow a standard of care. And if that uh, provider did not follow the standard of care, did it cause damages? So we can fast forward to the end in terms of the analysis. Was the patient injured? Was the patient damaged? The answer is yes. So we've got the two bookends. Yes, there's a doctor-patient relationship or provider-patient relationship. There's also damages. So the next question is, did the did the practitioner fail to follow the standard of care? And did that failure cause the damages? So I, I tell clients that the plaintiff needs to run the board on all of those elements. They need to win on all of those. It's not your job to defend against all of these and prove that you're innocent, if you will, or not liable, if you will. It's their job to prove that you are liable and they've got to run the board. So let's give an example of a case where um, a doctor does not follow the standard of care, but it doesn't cause damages. Okay, 
Um, so let's say in the operating room, the standard of care for a reasonably prudent physician or surgeon would be to give antibiotics just prior to cutting the skin, prophylactic antibiotics, okay? And let's say, drop the ball, just doesn't happen. Um, right then and there, we could say, hey, look, that may very well be a violation of standard of care. There may be arguments against it, um, against making that argument. But um, for our purposes, let's just say that's a breach in the standard of care. Now, let's also say that the, um, the patient ended up having a complication. Let's say the patient had a spinal fluid leak, okay? And that this turned into a bad outcome. And let's say the patient even died in our situation. So we're checking the box for, yes, doctor-patient relationship. Yes, there was a breach of the standard of care. But that breach, namely not giving the antibiotics, did not cause the death, did not cause the damages. It was caused by something else. So that means the plaintiff has not run the board. And even though the doctor in that particular case um, violated a standard of care, that violation did not cause the injury, did not cause the damages. So to recap, um, from the medical legal perspective, the plaintiff, in this case the patient, needs to run the board demonstrating doctor owed a duty to the patient, that there's a doctor-patient relationship, that, um, that they did not follow the standard of care, and in doing so, that violation caused uh, damages. So look, the truth is, you don't need to be omniscient. You, when you see a patient in the ER, you don't need to have 100% accuracy. That is not the standard. Um, and I will say the trend is your friend. The trend is your friend. So how do we treat this? Educate the patient, the family, that if things are moving in the wrong direction, they must return and the care path must be escalated. And that's how I think of this. I think that you don't have to be omniscient, but you definitely want to document, hey, look, I think this is um, strep throat. I don't know for certain, but if I'm correct, we're giving the amoxicillin, this patient should be getting better quickly. This is the expected trend. This is what you should be on the lookout for. But we don't know with 100% certainty because different conditions evolve differently. And if in this particular case, we're not getting any better, you got to come back. And I think had that happened in a timely fashion, it's not, it's not clear the patient would have had the same rotten outcome. And I'm not sure there would have been um, a settlement. I, I think this would have been a very... Uh, defendable case. So I think it's Im Im I think it's important to document any uncertainty that you have in terms of diagnostic accuracy and inform, educate patient and family what to expect if your diagnosis is accurate. What what is the treatment? Um, uh, what is the um, the trend going to look like? And if it's not following that trajectory, what is their obligation? What are they supposed to do? Who are they supposed to call? What are they supposed to do? You don't want them sitting at home saying, well, the doctor told me everything's going to be okay. And then the patient's getting lethargic, has 105 degree fever. I mean, all types of things that are bad uh, that can happen. So anyway, in terms of the trend, educate, educate, uh, educate. So from a medical legal perspective, there's a difference between an acute catastrophic event such as a pulmonary embolus at home versus a progressive condition as here that had a catastrophic outcome, but it played out over a couple days. 
And I think that's ultimately why this was treated as a settlement where money was paid uh, to the plaintiff because it played out uh, over time. And it is, I, I don't know if this would have been any different, but if, for example, in this scenario, um, the documentation said, look, if, um, if the patient is not getting better, then I want you to come back. Now, if the patient suddenly decompensated and had an acute catastrophic event like death, I think this probably could have been defended easier because I don't think omniscience is the standard for which you are held. The mere fact that they didn't get a CAT scan initially to find a brain tumor, I don't think is fatal to the defense of this. Now, I think what may have, may have been fatal was the lack of documentation of a neurologic examination. But assume, for the sake of argument, that in this vignette, the, the neurologic exam was documented. It basically said the patient was alert, uh, following commands bilaterally, was non-focal, cranial nerves were intact, and so on and so forth. Um, and then the patient had a sudden acute catastrophic event at home, I think this case would have been defendable. I don't know that this would have settled. What do you think, Mike? Well, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on the uh, physician assistant versus a physician uh, in terms of how this played out. Not so much, let's not change the care. Let's leave those facts exactly the same, that a physician does the strep test, releases the the patient. Do you think that the fact that it was an emergency room and the provider was not a licensed physician, but was a physician assistant, um, made any difference in this case? I do. I think it does matter. I've seen multiple times um, the same provider or a different provider with different background training experience make the same decision, the same decision, and end up with a different medical legal outcome. It is presumed that those with more background and more experience will often get the benefit of the doubt with a case being filed. Now, having said that, having said that, I'm going to eat my shoe right now by stating that sometimes those with extra training will be held to an even higher standard. They will be held to the, so for example, the difference between a generalist and a specialist, okay? As a generalist, you're not supposed to know everything about everything but if for example um you are the specialist and you have background niche training and experience in dealing with a very unusual situation you may burn so i um i know i basically took both sides of that coin right there in terms of answering your situation but i do think that more often than not um, those who have less experience and are are practicing outside their lane or outside their scope of practice are more likely to get burned in the medical legal world than somebody who has uh, exquisite background training and experience. And I do think a a typical um, seasoned, trained emergency room doctor would have given instructions in terms of managing expectations with a treatment trajectory of the patient's getting worse, you got to come back. If the patient's getting better, they're on the right track. Um, so there, I guess I've answered your question in an obscure and um, counterfactual way. So I apologize for that. I don't think I clarified. I yeah, think I no, just confused. I, I, I attribute that to your legal training and not your medical training. <laughs> exactly. Um, so look, I think the other thing that really 
there was no uh, no coming back from for this physician assistant uh, was the the lack of uh, continuing medical education hours that were necessary, and then trying to uh, to falsify it, 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 assuming that the facts presented were, were were correct. As a defense attorney, I don't know what you do with that. I mean, kind of best case scenario as a defense attorney is a is an unmarked grave for your your client at that point, right? <laughs> yeah. There is nothing you can do to rehabilitate that. I don't I don't believe uh, bad enough not to have the hours. Now, look, you and I would probably agree that. If they had gone to and picked up an extra four or five hours to satisfy the requirement, that those hours wouldn't have touched on this obscure area of medicine and wouldn't have really made any difference in the care anyways. None. doesn't matter. The fact that you don't do it, you're then judged across the board as being deceitful on how you report things and generally uh, not not having everything um in, in line like you should, trying to cut corners, and that just plays right into the plaintiff's attorney's hands, right? They right, play so fast and loose with these rules, they, they ignore rules, and that's exactly what happened, and that's why we didn't have a differential diagnosis, and that's why my, my client is gonna be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. That's what you're gonna hear. Right, so there, there are two issues here. Number one, um, you didn't do the right, uh, the appropriate number of uh, continuing medical education hours. Okay, that shouldn't be fatal in general. But if you if you fabricate that story to the to the board of medicine as you renew your license, you now you have taken a minor problem and turned it into a major problem because it is now presumed we can't trust you with anything. If you're basically saying, yeah, I did 20 hours and you only did 15. That means that you lied about a submission to to the state, and it also will be presumed that the medical record can't be trusted. That what you put down there is just a work uh, of fiction. So um, I, I know many. Well, for virtually all medical licenses, uh, continuing medical education is self-reported. It's on the honor system, and look, we all know. Everybody knows. Um, what the requirements are in their state and when they're going to need to get it done by. So I would just say, get it done well in advance of reapplying for your license. So it never turns into an issue. I mean, it probably would have turned, this would have been a nothing burger had this patient not presented to the ER and ultimately um, had a catastrophic outcome. But once the plaintiff attorney started digging into this particular case, it everything was fair game. And this became, um, this became hell on earth for for the physician's uh, assistant. I'm sure. First of all, there's the shame and doubt that comes with uh, a child being injured. I mean, all of us are going to flog ourselves mercilessly uh, over this. What could we have done differently? What should we have done differently? Then the board of medicine will be charged with saying, "Well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, you're not properly reporting all of these self-reported items that depend upon the honor system. This is not good." So you can just see how this goes from bad to worse, you know, once a plaintiff attorney is advocating strongly uh, for uh, for their client. And this is the type of case that is going to elicit strong uh, advocation on behalf of the client, right? There's a lot of, of long-term damage here. The child, according to these records, was going to be in a wheelchair the rest of the rest of his life. Uh, this is not mm -hmm. a small, inconsequential injury. 
and what we see when there are potential large damages and long-term damages is that attorneys will um, leave no stone unturned. And so this wasn't just looking at the medical uh, records and talking about that. This was a full-on examination of the mm -hmm. defendant and, and her, her license and how she's practiced and her training and so forth. And in that process was turned up, I am sure, the fact that in the past there had been an issue with not having enough continuing medical education. Yeah, now we're talking about it. So it's it's not as if it, it just disappeared. Let's do a quick segue. I mean, we talked about this patient being in the emergency room, but sometimes patients are seen urgently in a different capacity or different on a different platform. And this is relevant to the time we're recording this, which would be 2021, maybe released in 2022. But if by phone or telemedicine, the new platform that everybody everybody uses, you may miss subtle hints. Um, you can't do most of the examination or, or perform a number of tests if the patient is not physically seen. This has got, and certainly in modern days, it become easier to send photos and videos for a patient uh, to make a point. I think the take home message is if there's any doubt whatsoever, I would err on the side of caution, which means tell your patient they need to be seen face-to-face. -face. Um, nobody's going to beat you up for being overly uh, careful. It's certainly great to reassure a, a patient. That's that's very useful, but false reassurance will definitely get you burned. So um, I think with the new technology platforms that are out there, um, both um, both with you know old-school telephone as well as uh, new video, either live or um, by sending pictures or, or recorded videos. This has helped make diagnosis easier in many ways, but in other ways, it, it gives us a sense uh, of security that we've reassured the patient when trouble uh, is brewing. So what's the message? The message is if in doubt, they're on the side of caution, nobody's gonna beat you up for being overly careful and insisting the patient be seen face, uh, face to face. Agreed. All right. So we've got a few more minutes. So let's touch on a couple other topics I've, I want to highlight. So I'm actually a fan of giving out your mobile number. Um, I know that there are a lot of reasons why doctors do not want to give out mobile number, uh, but many doctors do it. I know that those in the cash pay fields like plastic surgeons, some bariatric surgeons, um, concierge medicine uh, physicians, they, they give out their mobile number. Dentists give out their mobile number. And the good news is, is that it's rarely abused. I can't say it's never abused. I would say it's rarely abused. Um, but I want to um, give a shout out to one of our strategic partners, which is MedXCom. And we'll put that in the show notes, which is a medical, an automated medical answering service, which records all phone conversations that come in. So if people are going to call you, first of all, they can they don't call you directly on your mobile. They call through a virtual number um, on medx.com that's assigned to your practice. And then everything gets reported and gets stored for 20 plus years. And so it eliminates this he said, she said. There actually is a recording in a HIPAA compliant um, structure that is useful in terms of um, 
reminding everyone what was said because certainly memories will fade down the road. It's certainly better than just writing, I spoke to the patient this particular night. Well, doctor, what did you speak to this patient about? Well, we, we talked about, you know, the fact that if, um, if the breathing got any worse, it should go to the emergency room. Well, wouldn't it be better if there was an actual recording of that as opposed to a, um, just a verbal summary or, or, or a written summary um, in the record the following day? Because it's the difference between an actual recording and something that's perceived to be um, in your self-interest. So I'm, I'm a fan. I, I think there are many ways to, uh, to address this. Um, I think giving out your mobile number to me is is a good idea, but I can see why some doctors would prefer not to do that. But uh, MedXCom is, I think they've solved a lot of these uh, these uh, particular uh, problems. So what else do we want to talk about um, before we leave? I think the challenge here, this was a bad outcome with a failure to diagnose, and it was particularly more problematic because the plaintiff in this case was a child, or at least the injured party was a child, uh, with many years of, of life uh, left to uh, live. Um, I personally think this would have turned into a multi-million dollar judgment had this case not settled. So I do think it was smart to settle this case because I think had this gone to court, there would have been a lot of jury appeal. I think the the plaintiff attorney would have brought up all the facts about the physician's assistant being in over her head, not having the background uh, training and experience to be able to identify such challenges in the emergency department, didn't even bother to perform a neurologic examination, didn't give instructions related to follow-up care if the patient wasn't getting any better. Uh, so I, I think this was a smart move. Uh, in terms of settling. What do you think, Mike? Oh, I I agree. Now, what we don't know is much about the uh, the child's uh, family, financial situation, so forth. Um, and malpractice cases can take a long time. There could have been pressure by the family to get the case resolved and not wait for a, a trial. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But at $900,000, uh, given these facts, it looks like a what I would consider a, a win for the for the defense, in that I would have expected the uh, payout to be significantly higher than nine hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, particularly if the facts, as alleged, um, you've got a five-year-old with significant future medical needs. Um, I think you're probably looking at a life care plan well in advance of $900,000. And plus, remember, the attorney has to be paid, too. So let's shave off a, you know, 35% um, and plus expenses. I'm sure there are plenty of experts on this particular case. There may not have been a whole lot left. But, you know, I, I still think, you know, this was probably the right call for, uh, uh, for the physician's assistant in the facility to, um, to get this settled. I think that that's I think that that's right. The other thing we don't know of is is the amount of insurance that was available to, and that sometimes enters into people's uh, factoring of evaluating the case. If there was a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars total coverage, and that was all that was going to be had, you could settle for nine nine hundred thousand several years in advance and avoid the cost and risk of litigation. You know, some people would say that that was the move, uh, the proper move to take on behalf of the. Yeah, plaintiff. exactly. That's appropriate risk mitigation. 
Well, great. Right. Thanks for uh, joining us today, and we'll see you on another episode of Medical Liability Minute. Take care. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O-N-F-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.